Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A year ago, in the midst of a global pandemic, we watched the death of George Floyd, and Americans responded, protesting the realities of racial injustice in cities across the country. For many individuals, this may have been the first time they recognized the depth and breadth of discrimination in the United States, in their communities, in their classrooms. And from book clubs to corporate campaigns, the country has been inspired to engage in deep thought and discussion of their role in the creation, development, and advancement of racial discrimination. So the 2021 Benyon Teachers Workshop, which is presented, hosted by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at USU, and will originate later this month from USU, is titled Hidden in the Shadows of Democracy, Engaging and Teaching the Strength of Race and Difference. And leading that workshop will be Maricela Martinez-Cola, Assistant Professor in the USU Department of Sociology, who joins us in studio. Welcome. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you. So great to say that again after about a year. Yeah. Joins us in studio. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's been a lot of phone interviews, even for people local, so we've been trying to follow uh, COVID protocols. Now USU has uh, loosened its uh, rules a little bit, and so... So, so great to welcome you into, into studio. Um, so the Bunyan Teachers Workshop happens every year, different themes, right? Uh, this is directed, I, I guess, to teachers, right? Administrators, educators. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, teachers are encouraged to apply, graduate students uh, who are graduate students who are in education or students who wish to become teachers and administrators. Those are usually the, the three uh, populations that end up applying. Yeah. Uh, so before we jump into this, and, and this is very much related, um, we had you on a panel of, uh, of folks uh, talking very directly after the death of George Floyd. Yeah. Um, we had a, brought in a different panel to react immediately after the uh, verdict in the, the Derek Chauvin uh, yeah. case. So I just wanted to get your your reaction since we talked a, a yearish ago. And yeah. uh, I know you, you keep your finger on the pulse of these things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, it's been quite a year. I'll say that, and, and it's particularly as a as a race scholar, um, you know, I remember when it first happened. I, I think I was doing uh, talks or or some kind of engagement at least once a week, and um, it was it was pretty exhausting um, personally. You know, to sort of keep talking about. Um, death in that way, but I felt compelled. I felt like, you know, it's, it's a conversation that needed to be had. And, um, and it's been very interesting. My students have been very different this year. Um, when I would teach class, I would used to have, I used to have to take the first three weeks to kind of convince them that racism was real. And now they were just like, okay, no, we get it. Let's, let's, we want to learn more now. And it was really, uh, very refreshing to be able to uh, start from that level of them understanding that it does exist, and now we can get into some deeper conversations. So that's interesting. You had to take the first three weeks to to, to convince them racism is real. What uh, you know, there there have been so many of these cases of mm-hmm. usually black men, um, you know, uh, dying. Um, what changed? You, think? you know, it's really remarkable. I I really do believe there's there's two contributing factors. Um, the first one is, is time. Uh, the, all the other sort of videos or, or you know, uh, images that people had seen before were relatively short um, and to the point that you could say you're not too sure what happened after. I mean, before, and you're not too sure what happened after. Um, with George Floyd, it, it, was, you know, it was over nine minutes where the world saw a man die, you know, um, and so it was time about the sort of the videos and the, and the witnessing of it. 
But also, you met sort of the police brutality meets pandemic, right? Where now people have time to sit and actually think about it. You know, uh, we weren't running from one appointment to the next and, you know, looking on our phones, reading the feed and then hurrying up and leaving someplace else. We were stuck at home with nothing but time on our hands. It wasn't that we weren't busy, but now we had time to just sit with something. And I think that that's what was really such a big difference uh, in this particular case. People had time to really ponder, how did that happen? You know, why did I just see that? And why am I just now realizing it? Mm. It's interesting to me uh, what might be extrapolated, learned from how this played out in the political campaign. Uh, Of course, President Trump was uh, trying to use uh, this as, as a wedge. Uh, but he was speaking to uh, a fair number of people who truly believe that uh, there is no systemic racism. Derek Chauvin's example of a bad apple, that sort of thing, right? Yes. And then focusing on the riots, which there certainly were riots. You know, protests turned into riots and destruction and, and, you know, bad things happening there and disorder, right? Yes. Uh, so I wonder if you could you could speak to uh, to that that there there is a you know that your your uh, students coming in apparently are convinced <laughs> yeah. but there is a large segment of the population who are not convinced. Absolutely, and and it, it's not to say that my students probably were very much like well, you know, uh, I would often hear you know, and that before that people say, oh, well, I understand the protests, I just don't like riots, you know, um, and and. You know, I would have to, I would understand I understood where they were coming from from that sense. If if you were looking completely on the outside, that's what it would look like to them. Um, but one thing that I uh, try to impress upon the students is that you know you can look at something in a variety of different you know ways and and understand that people see things differently, so they experience things differently. Um, and so I believe that you know in in trying to drive that wedge. There was this sort of middle group that, you know, you have the group that's just they're going to not believe that systemic racism exists. And no matter what I say or if they can take a whole class with me by the end, they'll still think, you know, the same thing. And I often tell them, I'm going to give you the information you have, um, you know, the information that's out there. What you do with it is up to you. You know, um, I can't hold you accountable for something you don't know. But once you know you can't say it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's one of the things that um, happens when you sort of have, you know, kind of the two sides. Then you have that middle group, as I said, who, who um, is learning more information by joining the book clubs, by having the conversations, by asking their friends, you know, are you really afraid of the police? And it's like, well, yes. And starting to kind of understand that personal experience of it all. Um, but if you've never encountered that, if that's not something that's significant in your life, of course you're not going to see it. Yeah. Um, I want to get into this as well as we go along, and you'll be addressing this discussion to teachers, right, as, as, as we have the, the, the workshop, which is uh, uh, coming up later this month. Um, and, and I want to get into there, there's a controversy right now nationwide and in Utah about critical race theory, and, yes. and uh, do we – include this in curriculum, right? So that's a flashpoint directly in what we're talking about in the schools. But I want to back up a little bit. Sure. Um, I watched a TED Talk that you gave yes. where you give some of your background. So I'm interested in, in this. So you grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan. Yes. It's a serial capital of the world um, and a small little town. 
And um, if you look on the side of a Kellogg cereal box, you'll see my hometown there. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so you said Sesame Street was influential. Tremendously influential. Um, you know, I, I joked around in the TED Talk as well, but um, we moved a lot of uh, my family members moved up to Michigan at that time. And, you know, uh, we you know, my family made up uh, four of the five Latino families that were that were in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, and so, you know, I, I had my family around me to sort of, uh, you know, uh, solidify my identity as a Latina, you know, as a, as a Mexican-American. Um, and uh, but I, when, you know, you look on TV, there wasn't ne- something necessarily there. And, and then but when Sesame Street came, it just it blew my mind. They had not just the different color, you know, Muppets or, you know, characters that were on there. Um, but then you had the the. Um, the people that lived there. And, you know, you had Maria and Luis and Gordon. And, you know, it, it was a world that um, I was more familiar with um, and started to reflect my reality. Yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about that. It's mm-hmm. I, th- I think this is one of those things that if you're, you know, uh, me, a white middle-aged man, mm-hmm. uh, growing up, uh, Everybody on television reflected me, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't a thing for me. Yeah. So, so, how important was that to, to you to see these? You know, characters? it's a, it's it's just so critical. I, you know, one of the there's a, a wonderful book called Mirrors, um, Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Doors. It's an article, and um, it, it, it impresses the. Uh, it's a children's literature expert wrote it, and she talks about this idea that kids have to see themselves in books. You know, when, when you see yourself, you know, in the history books, when you see yourself on television, when you see representations of yourself, there's something that is, um, you know, uh, that is sort of, um, what's from, I'm sorry, pandemic brain. <laughs> it's something that's reinforced, right? That, that what, you're, what you do in this world and that your place in this world is important, right? Um, and so when you see somebody that looks like your uncle, that looks like your mother, that even may even look like you. Uh, there's this excitement. And then when you see other people excited about that. So, you know, um, I, for example, uh, you know, Black Panther came out um, and we lost uh, Chad Boswick, you know, d- during the pandemic, unfortunately. But I loved that you started to see all these young, you know, uh, black children doing the Wakanda sign. And but what was even more exciting is you saw all these little white kids you know, with blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, from from Idaho to you know, New York City doing the Wakanda sign and that they loved, you know, Black Panther and admired Black Panther. And so imagine if images like that were with you all the time, you know, um, you know, white children get Superman and Batman, you know, sort of all the other superheroes that look like them. Um, but when you get that one, it's just it's so exciting. Um, and you wish there were more. Uh, and I know that it's changing now. There's kids that get to see, you know, Doc McStuffins, you know, a lot of other representations of themselves that are out there. But when I was young, it wasn't there. It was the electric company and Sesame Street. And that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that uh, there's a validation, I guess. In, in, Absolutely. In yeah. yeah it, it just it says that uh, you're important in this world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about choosing a major. This is, this is quite the. <laughs> quite the journey for you. It really was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college. You know, I tell my students, I signal that to my students all the time um, because I want them to know that, you know, they have a, I'm a first generation scholar. 
Um, and so when I went there, they had a back then the course catalog was an actual book. Um, and I, I was told you have to declare a major. And I thought it was you had to declare a major at the beginning. I had no idea it was until your junior year. So I'm a very diligent person. And so I started to look into the course catalog and I'm just looking at all these courses. And it's, you know, for a person that's, you know, a nerdy, you know, loves reading books, this is like, you know, heaven. You're like, oh my goodness, I want to take them all. So I started to go through and just circle the classes that I knew I would absolutely have to take. And they ended up falling in psychology and African-American African studies. And so I decided that was going to be my double major. Um, but when I went home and told my family what I was going to major in, my family that, you know, either wanted me to go to law or become a doctor or <laughs> an engineer or something to that effect. Um, when I told them I'm, I'm going to major in African-American studies, they were like, why, why are you, do you think you're black? You know, and it's like, no. And it wasn't, didn't come from anti-blackness. They were just wondering why, why African-American studies? Why, you know, isn't there, can you study your, you know, your own people, so to speak? And then when I told my friends, it was one of the first times I had Chicano friends. Chicano is like, Mex it's a Mexican-American, but um, sort of a little bit more political, <laughs> you know. And um, my more militant friends were like, Mari, don't you, you know, don't you have any pride? Don't, why don't you take, you know, Latin, Latin, you know uh, Latino studies um, and be able to study our people, right? And I understood that. I, I understood where it was coming from, um, particularly because I had been, I hadn't. When I got to college, it was the first time I ever read, uh, you know, artists and, and, and poets whose last names ended in Z's and vowels, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I understood that. And, but what I explained to them was, um, you know, I know my house, you know, my culture inside and out. I love my house, but there's nothing wrong with getting to know my neighborhood. And that's when the Sesame Street song, you know, rang in my head. Who are the people in your neighborhood? And I, I just decided then I wanted my neighborhood to be populated with amazing people from all different backgrounds. And, uh, and it, it happened. It's beautiful. And I, I, I feel like I get to walk around with this really sort of amazing gift of being able to know all of these different um, authors and people and, and artists and musicians. Um, and and I, my life is the better for it. And this became your career, right? Uh, yeah, it sure did. The, yeah. the, the study in multiculturalism, you might call it, and, and, and such. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to uh, make that broader. So who's in your neighborhood? Um, so broaden that out to all of us. Uh, what, what are the benefits of that? And, and including there are some folks who don't want to know who's in the neighborhood. and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, Or if they know who's in the neighborhood, they want everybody to conform to the way their house does it, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that, um, you know, for, for me, having that and the benefit of having it has just made my life so much richer, you know. Um, and, and I don't, because of it, I don't really see boundaries um, or borders. I don't see them between disciplines. So I, what I tell people is I, I get to play around in different sandboxes, you know. Um, and so for me, I... I uh, I often tell people, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense. There's a little kid in there and mm -hmm. he says, you know, I see dead people. I see them everywhere. You know, and I would say, well, I'm not, you know, I don't see dead people. Um, but I do see connections. Like I see connections. I see them everywhere. And it's it's a really a, sort of a, a, a gift, honestly. And I'm not saying that I have the gift. It was a gift. It was something given to me to be able to see um, 
just how similar things can work across. And so I, I can't help but think of other groups when that happens. So um, eventually I'm going to be studying about comedy and race, for example, right? And I want to um, learn how do comedians joke about race. That's, you know, what the, what the overall goal is. Um, and if I just spoke with black comedians, then I would only get their perspective. So I want to talk to all different types of comedians, you know, uh, Middle Eastern comedians, Asian American comedians, white comedians. And I want to ask them, how do you do this? Because each of them will have different ways um, of doing things. And, you know, um, I could just do one thing, you know, sort of for the rest of my life and I'm sure be perfectly happy doing that. Um, Well, no, actually, I wouldn't be perfectly happy to not me. (laughs) But I think that when you choose to do just that one thing, you close the doors to so many other, you know, things, uh, you know, so many other opportunities. And so if, if you want your neighborhood to look one particular way, you know, there's, believe me, there's plenty of opportunities around this world to be able to do that. Um, but your world becomes so much smaller in that moment. Um, and, you know, when you get an opportunity to travel internationally, it's not the same thing when you've had this broad world and it's something that you're able to to just um, enjoy. You know, it's like a, to go back to Battle Creek, it's like having different cereals in your life. You know what I mean? If you want to eat cornflakes for the rest of your life, that's fine. But I love mixing it, you know, um, and I love putting stuff together and see how does it work and what is it that they have in common. And I, I think it just comes from an inquisitive mind. Um, and, you know, uh, I... I don't mind being uncomfortable. You know, I think that when you're uncomfortable, that means you're changing. That mm-hmm. means you're growing. Yeah. Uh, several things I want to uh, pick up after a break. Let's take a break. Sure. Um, we're talking with uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola. Uh, she is an assistant professor in the USU Department of Sociology, um, and she is directing the upcoming 2021 Bunyan Teachers Workshop. Uh, that's... Uh, presented by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at USU. And this year's workshop is titled Hidden in the Shadows of Democracy, Engaging and Teaching the Strength of Race and Difference. Organizers say this will not be just another diversity workshop. I want to talk about that when we come back as well. We'll have more following this break. In 1971, Robert Rosenthal was working an entry-level job for the New York Times when an editor called with the story of a lifetime. He says, I want you to come to room 1111 at the Hilton Hotel tomorrow and don't tell anyone where you're going and bring enough clothes for at least a month. And down the rabbit hole we go. I slept in a room with two huge filing cabinets. I slept with the Pentagon Papers. On the next episode of Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah State University. In partnership with Utah Public Radio, we are relaunching and expanding our Utah Women in Leadership podcast series. We'll share research and resources about topics like imposter syndrome, gender and race, the impact of COVID-19 on Utah women and work, body image challenges, and more. Listen at utwomen.org or on your favorite podcast app beginning June 2nd. That's out today. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're joined in studio by Maricela Martinez-Cola. She's assistant professor uh, in the USU Department of Sociology at, uh, at US, USU. And uh, she will be directing the upcoming 2021 Benyon Teachers Workshop. 
It's uh, presented by the Mount West Center for Regional Studies at USU, and uh, the title of the workshop this year is Hidden in the Shadows of Democracy, Engaging and Teaching the Strength of Race and Difference. And uh, they say that uh, they will uh, explore ways to transform difficult conversations about racism and difference into meaningful action. Um, so difficult conversations, uh, they certainly can be, and I think for that reason, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of us avoid those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, yeah, I can understand. Um, uh, again, I, I really, um, one of the things that I try to do um, is that even if, if people uh, completely and utterly disagree with me, I, I generally try to look at it from their perspective, if I can, in a different way. Um, and so uh, you know, I, I give an example often with, with uh, students when I tell them that, um, you know, uh, sometimes uh, students of, some, some of my students of color can get very frustrated, right, because they see racism, they experience racism, they know it's there, but their fellow white students just don't see it. And they get really, like, how can they not see it? It's just so obvious, you know, as uh, one student, you know, we'll call him DeAndre, said uh, to me one day. He goes, I just, I'm so mad. They don't, why can't they see it, Dr. MC, why? And I said, I, I, you know, DeAndre, I understand. I know it can be very, very frustrating. Let me just ask you a really quick question. And, uh, you know, he said, yeah. I said, do you know all the accessible and inaccessible spaces around campus and, he sort of stopped for a second. I said, why? Isn't it obvious? I mean, don't you care? And he started to say, well, it's, but it's, it's, and I said, you see that little bit of defensiveness that you're feeling right now? I said, that's how white people feel when we try to call them out on something they don't see. You don't see it because you don't have to see it. It's not something that's impacting your daily life. So you're able to just kind of literally walk around in this world and not notice those things. Now, the difference is, um, DeAndre came back to me at the end of the semester and he's like, Dr. MC, ever since you told me that, now I know where everything is. <laughs> and there the students were saying that they were having, the, there's a disability students group here. I didn't know that. And they said they had a hard time trying to get to one part of the building because there's no, there's no elevator. And so like we all got together and rallied and, you know, I, I went there to support them and get that office moved so that it's more accessible, you know, and I think that's the difference. You know, as DeAndre saw something he didn't know and then wanted to learn how to do it. Now, I could have sort of confronted him or, you know, I don't I'm not a confrontational person. I don't do it in a confrontational manner. Um, And there's some people that do. And and that's that's the sort of their method. Um, And so I try to make difficult conversations less difficult, um, if if at all possible, um, by providing a space where People can really ask me whatever they want. I've, I've been asked everything. Um, and so it's really very hard to offend me. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Um, and I think that uh, I try to come at it from a place of compassion and a place of understanding and, and trying to believe the best in my fellow uh, human beings. I'm curious, what are some of the things people have asked you that, that, that could be, I guess, a little touchy or, yeah. you know? Well, um, one time I was... Uh, you know, when I was in um, Virginia and I had a, a student, you know, ask me, why do so many Mexicans live in one house? You know, so you have to unpack that, right? There's a, sort of a lot of information there. And, you know, I'm, I'm Latina. And so people would say, oh, how could you ask? That's offensive. You know, I'm sure somebody would have maybe jumped on that person had they heard it right then and there. I actually felt pretty glad that they felt comfortable enough to ask me, 
you know, and I'd rather they ask me um, than have an experience where, you know, they were told that, oh, you know, now you're racist and now they're not going to ever talk about it again. And so I said, okay. I said, well, you know, let me let me ask you, where do you live? You know, um, and, you know, started he started to tell me where he lived and it happened to be a neighborhood that was beginning to change, you know, over. And I said, so there's a lot of change happening there. He goes, yeah, there's a lot of change. I said, that must be pretty you know, pretty uh, scary. I mean, you grew up there your whole life and now you're seeing, you know, things change. And I said, I'm guessing you don't really like change all that much. He goes, no, no, I don't like change. You know? mm-hmm. And I said, so you're kind of now starting to see sort of all these people together and you're wondering, wow, you know, why, why, why don't they just buy another house or why don't they, you know, just uh, live in another place? And I said, one of the things about a lot of Latinx or Latino communities is they're very family oriented and they're very close groups of people. So what I have is yours. You know, and so um, I grew up uh, having uncles and, and, you know, tias and tios, my uncles and aunts, living with us when they didn't have, um, when they weren't on their feet yet. And so they would live with us until they got on their feet and then were able to go and, you know, sort of make their own way, you know, in the world. And, you know, we kind of still do that to this day. My father lived with me for several years, you know, because it was just better for him to live. We had a multi-generational household. That was my normal and so what I tried to explain to the student is that they're not coming in to ruin your neighborhood. That's not the, the purpose of it. There's actually a lot of love and community and family behind that. And because he could relate to the family aspect, I said, you know, if, you know, if your uh, brother or sister or cousin needed something, wouldn't you want to give it to them? And they're like, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I, okay, you know, I, I get that, I get that. And I said, they're just here, they're trying to make a living, they're trying to make their way in this world. And if their family has something that they can share and give and make that process just a little bit easier, they're going to do it. Um, and so it was just a really sort of good conversation to, to have um, back and forth with the students so that, you know, you try to, you know, um, I think what happens is we, we, t- we stop seeing one another, you know, um, and once you get a chance to just see each other's worlds in some way, I think it builds a little bit more understanding. Yeah, there can be a danger in, uh, you know, if I were to say, okay, Maricela, you represent, you're, you're the stereotype of every Chicana, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> then we lose our individuality, and, and that can be a danger. I have a question about uh, the, the, the response. Initially, you get uncomfortable questions, and then others, students might say, oh, you can't ask her that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so is there a point where we're too woke? Is there a point where we're... <laughs> Political correctness runs amok. In, in other words, it, it runs counter to us having open and uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think um, sort of being, being political, well, it's interesting, being politically correct and woke are, are um, I, but I get what you're saying. I think, you know, so whenever, when one of the things that I do in my classroom is I, I you know, teach the students uh, about a variety of different groups. And, you know, so they're learning all this new information, you know. And what I explained to them is, um, you know, I said, I don't expect you to now go out there in this world and become, you know, the phrase social justice warriors and call out every instance of racism that ever happens in this world, you know, Um, because it takes time. You need to learn how to do that. You know, again, I've been here 20 years and I've been doing it 20 years and I still mess up or I still freeze when I'm not too sure how to, you know, talk about something. Um, but one thing I try to stay very cognizant of is to not get arrogant, you know. And I think sometimes what happens is, um, you know, I, lo- I love my woke siblings. I do. I love, I love them. I love that they're, 
you know, um, wanting to learn and that they feel very passionate about something. But sometimes um, I think that you forget that it's a gift and you kind of start to, you know, use it as something that makes you better than another person necessarily, right? Um, Rather than understanding that, uh, you know, I have a wonderful colleague, uh, you know, um, who said that, you know, when somebody is woke, it meant that at one point they were asleep, you know? Um, And so you need to be able to remember that at one point you were asleep and somebody was patient enough to talk to you about these things. And so it's, I think it's more important to talk to somebody than to shut them down. Because if, you know, again, if they had been shut down, who knows when they would have had the next conversation or felt comfortable enough to have the next conversation. So, you know, I try to ask people to say is humble if they can. Once they have this information, it, it now d- it doesn't give them license to sort of, um, you know, uh, judge other people who don't. But just to remember, gosh, I, I'm, somebody was patient with me. I'm going to try to be patient with other people. And if you can't be patient, then, you know, this is where it, it, you start to kind of learn and and build that up. You know, as people of color, you know, I've been doing this my whole life. So there's kind of almost a, a, you build a callus, right, for some things. Some things don't hit you as hard. But when you're just first learning about it, everything hurts. And so I think it comes from a place of wanting to protect your friend or wanting to, you know, um, know, uh, declare how you feel. But I think if you can try to remember that somebody was patient with you, somebody took the time to educate you, just, you know, and you didn't know that before. So it's important to just, I think, to stay humble when you when you learn this information and then try to teach it in, in you know, uh, ways to other people as well. How do you uh, how do you reduce the feeling of being threatened? Uh, you know, the, you mentioned this earlier, mm-hmm. that's uh, that. uh talk to a white person, person in, in the majority culture, they can feel defensive. Mm-hmm. Um you know, 400 years of uh, slavery, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not my specific fault, but it's, you know, when we start having this conversation, it can feel like, okay, it's my community's fault, right? <laughs> and so walls go up. Yes. And there are other situations, I'm sure, you know, uh, that we could mention where where the walls go up. So I guess my question is, how, how do you keep the walls down? That must be a you know, key part of this. Yeah, that's true. I, well, you know, it, it's interesting because there are some people that, um, you know, the walls go up and uh, sometimes it's about protecting themselves, but sometimes those walls also protect me. Mm. You know, um, there are people that, that can get, um, you know, really, really harsh. Uh, the pandemic has not been very kind uh, to, um, you know, to to me, <laughs> I'll say that. Um, and so I think that what happens is, um Sometimes you're almost grateful that people put up walls because then you don't have to be, you know, um, subjected to that kind of to sort of the the I don't know if, I, if it's intentional or unintentional, but just the, the you know, veracity that, you know, it's just there's it, there's a meanness that's there that uh, I'm not, you know, kind of comfortable with. And what I try to do for myself is I, I you know, if walls are up, um, I, I can sense it. You know, um, and I just try to figure out if and it's somebody that's sort of that uh, you can almost see there's certain people you can see that, you know, if you just talk to them a bit, that wall will start to go down and you start to find out something that happened behind that wall that made them put it up in the first place. Right. Um, and so you start to kind of talk to that individual and, and sort of um, learn more about them, 
you know, and uh, and be able to try to make sense, help them understand your world by trying to find something that connects with their world. You know, so when you say, you know, one of the things, for example, that was pretty, pretty uh, fairly easy go to here in Utah is, you know, I would often tell students, I said, well, what if when you told me, you know, uh, students who were part of the church, for example, what if you told me about all of the history of your church and, and the persecution? Because students have shared that with me. And I said, I really don't think it was that bad. I mean, you know, maybe they meant this or maybe you shouldn't have done that. Or maybe then there would be this part of like, uh, wait, wait a minute. You know, I'm telling you something that's really important to me and you're telling me it doesn't exist. And I think that that's one of the things that really helped here to sort of putting down that walls because they know what that means to be misunderstood. You know, um, I think they were so happy that I wasn't asking questions about polygamous marriage and quote unquote magic underwear or all the other sort of stereotypes that you hear that I was asking them honest and real questions about their lives and what they do and what's meaningful to them that the walls start to go down. And when their walls go down, then when they're a little bit more apt to listen to me when I say, well, that, that's your experience, and I respect that. Let me tell you about mine now. Mm-hmm. Well, to continue, to continue your analogy, um, you know, you could also say to them, I acknowledge that, but, but isn't that in the past, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and that's something I'm, I'm sure, well, I know that argument is, you know, at long last, can't we just put this behind us, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I think there's a lot of people that wish they could, you know, um, but there are such long lasting effects. Like, I, I, let's say I may put something behind me. It doesn't mean the rest of the world has, you know. Um, and I think that when you ask somebody to put the past behind them, and there's a part of me, I'm, I'm sort of like a, a, I'm a historical sociologist, you know, and I'm a really just a big firm believer that, you know, if you don't understand what's happened in the past, things are going to, and it's effects of what happens today you know, um, then you're going to do it again. It's going to happen again Um, because there are lessons that need to be learned from that. And, you know, um, here they celebrate, you know, the the past was really, really awful, but this is what, you know, the strength and courage that our people did to make it happen, you know. And so that's not remembering that. That's honoring the, the, you know, what it took to be able to still try to make a life even out of all that ugliness, right? Um, And so... Sometimes remembering doesn't have to necessarily always be painful, you know, um, sometimes. And that's, you know, what, what kind of the point of the Benyon is, is. It doesn't always have to, you know, look back and only see misery. But beautiful, beautiful things came as a result of that. Even in all the midst of all that pain, you can still be able to learn and, and feel proud that um, in spite of all that and that you still were able to, um, you know, carry this pride, carry this love from one generation to the next. And so the stories are past and there's really stories of survival and stories of, of, you know, a growth and love and family and in all of that, that ends up making it, I think, um, so much stronger. So I think when you remember the past, yes, it's definitely just, just, you know, when you sit back and think about it and, and you start to sort of initially learn um, I know I had some students that would say, you know, did anything, didn't anything good come out of it? I said, oh, yeah, of course they did, you know. And, and I, I remember that it's called a deficit model teaching. When all you're teaching are all the bad things about a group or, you know, uh, a society, 
then all you're ever going to know is that misery. You know what I mean? But when you can be able to say that even in spite of that misery, look at everything that still survived. Look at the, the cultural survival, the, you know, the, um, you know, the fact that, that um, even in this really messed up system where you didn't have a place, you found a place, you made a place um, for yourself in there. I think that's what's so powerful. And I, I think that's where my teaching started to move a little more, um, you know, to teaching sort of all sides, to give students hope that what they're doing is, is for a reason. You know, that they're here giving their four years of their life to learn something to make some kind of difference. Uh, time for another break. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll uh, take a break and then come back with more with uh, Maricela Martinez-Cola. Uh, she is directing the 2021 uh, Benyon Teachers Workshop. That is presented by the USU Center for, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Um, and... Um, It'll be coming up later this month uh, from USU. It's titled Hidden in the Shadows of Democracy, Engaging and Teaching the Strength of Race and Difference. We'll have more following this. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we are with the one and only Mother Joffrey, one of the world's great ambassadors of Indian cuisine, author of 30 books. She's also an award-winning actress. We talked about everything from her being a terrible cook when she was young to the intense history of how tandoori chicken spread through India. That's coming up on The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce news stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. But as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're previewing the 2021 Benyon Teachers Workshop that's presented by the USU Center for Mountain West uh, Center, the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Um, it happens every year, uh, except last year, COVID, uh, I think, zapped it, but uh, we're back, 2021, and the, uh, the title of the workshop this year is Hidden in the Shadows of Democracy, Engaging and Teaching the Strength of Race and Difference. Maricela Martinez-Cola is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Utah State University, um, and she's directing that workshop. Um, so, Professor Martinez Cola, I want to uh, jump into a discussion of uh, critical race theory. It's much in the news nationwide yeah. and in Utah. Uh, I'm reading now from Fox 13 News. Utah lawmakers are working on legislation dealing with critical race uh, theory. Um, and uh, parents who would like to see it banned believe it promotes an ideology that creates more division than unity and is not driven by facts. Uh, of course, uh, those who support critical race theory would uh, disagree, but um, this has become kind of a flashpoint uh, directly in the schools, in the in the in the curriculum. So, uh, first of all, first question is, what is critical race theory? At least, yes, um, according to your understanding. Yes, well, I um, my I have a JD PhD, so it uh, means I uh, have a legal background as well, and that's really where where critical race theory was born. Um, there, back in the 1970s, there was a, a group of scholars that started what they called critical legal studies. And um, what, the way that sort of law was presented was this idea that, you know, it, it stands alone, that it is sort of, um, you know, purest in its form and how it's being delivered, right? 
and that the law is just the law, and that's how you that's how it needs to be dispensed, right? Well, critical legal theorists were saying, well, I think we have to consider some dynamics here, like poverty and, you know, the power dynamics that are involved in certain situations. We need to be able to look at the, you know, who is in power, who doesn't have power, and start to be able to maybe look at those cases in that way. And so this entire field of studies, critical legal studies, just was born out of that. But then what ended up happening is, you know, of course, once you get people talking, you'll have people that are like, but you know what, I'm, I'm glad that you're considering a power element, but you know, you're not considering um, the, uh, you know, the uh, experiences of women. And so then you have what they called, you know, feminist, feminist critical theory that ended up coming out of um, that area as well. And then eventually you had um, a wonderful scholar from Harvard named Derek Bell who started to say, well, you also need to look at race. And I think it's really important to be able to see the role of race when you're looking in these cases, Um, because to ignore it completely is to um, sort of put a blinder on to that. And he's just asking or open it up a little bit more. And so he took uh, it really came out of his work on Brown versus Board of Education, which, again, is another full circle moment since it's an area that I study um, where, you know, he said, you really need to understand not just you know, the laws that they were happening then, but you need to be able to understand the history, the context, uh, how, how the work, you know, Brown v. Board was seen in, by the world, even the conflicts. So he took something, you know, the sacred case of Brown v. Board and said, you know, um, the, there was, uh, the, it was really challenging for the NAACP because as an attorney, you're supposed to just represent your client's interests, but they themselves are kind of a client too. So he kind of talked about how they they picked a particular type of plaintiff to try to be able to make that um, uh, lawsuit work. And, you know, what is the uh, what are the dynamics of that? Let's talk about that, you know. Um, And so then as a critical race theorist myself, I'm like, oh, okay. well, if Brown v. Board happened, I wonder if it happened in other racial groups, too. And so that's kind of where, you know, how. uh, critical race theory was born, and then sort of all the branches that kind of came from it. So, yeah. yeah. I want to quote here, uh, Fox 13 uh, talked to Andrea Stringfellow, she's a parent of five mixed-race children, and Andrea says, what's happening with critical race theory and the ideologies we're pinpointing in certain races, and we're creating this blame, shame, and guilt. Um, it, and, and she says it causes, she feels it causes minority students to feel like victims. Hmm. Um, it's, it, that's interesting. Uh, I don't, I don't think that it makes, uh, it's different, but I guess you're not necessarily victim, but there's definitely, um, victimizing that's happening. You know, I think that when you have to look at that, um, you know, there's, there's a way that you can look at it as if you're powerless, you know, um, but I really, that's not the, the spirit behind uh, critical race theory. You know, when I talk about school desegregation cases um, and I talk about Mendez v. Westminster or Tate versus Hurley, you know, we're looking at that and it's like, oh, you know, the circumstances of it are really, you know, um, terrible. But I mean, look how this family fought against this really big legal system and, and, you know, tried to win. And you look at the reality that it took a hundred years for, you know, schools to become integrated, for, for you know, um, for uh, Brown v. Board to even be in a situation where it could happen. 
Um, and then you, you know, also, then you have to also look at this idea that it's like, yeah, how far have we come, though? You know, um, schools are more segregated now um, in some places than they were back in the 1950s. And so it's, it's pointing out sort of the truth and the reality of it, of, of what's happening systemically. And how you feel about that individually is really about how it's ultimately taught, you know, um, I, I believe. And, um, and I remember a time, even for myself, when I thought, man, is, is only, do only bad things happen? <laughs> you know, <laughs> do only bad things happen to people of color in this you know, country? And it's really easy to say, yeah, pretty much. And it's like, well, let's start talking about the Harlem Renaissance a little bit. You know, let's talk about the Chicano student movement where students got together, you know, something to show, you know, it wasn't just sort of things happening to people. You know, there were also people that were that were actively sort of fighting back. And so for the mixed race, you know, uh, children, for example, it's being able to recognize that as a mixed race child, you probably have a very different experience in this world than my than, uh, you know, I would growing up in a family of Latinos where I had, you know, that world around me all the time. And a lot of mixed race children, for example, will talk about feeling tugged between two worlds, right? Um, and then as a Chicana, I can understand that because I feel tugged between being Mexican and American, right? There's the, the, that sort of tug of war that's happening. And so I think there, there's, it's more about connecting with individuals and being able to recognize the larger systemic issue. Um, you know, I have an analogy that I've been working on to try to explain that a little better. An analogy? Yes. Yes. So, okay. So I, I am not a gardener. I will, let me just say that really quickly. Um, I, I would kill a chia pet. You know, I would kill a <laughs> cactus. Okay. But I noticed that it happens a lot around here. And so I thought, okay, the way that people think, um, you know, uh, the way that critical race theory works, there's sort of two ways, right? One, it says, you know, I don't want just this one type of flower in my garden, you know? Um, and it's beginning to understand that all flowers need different treatment, right? They're not all supposed to be treated the same in that garden. They're not all supposed to get the same amount of water. They're not all supposed to get the same amount of soil, the same amount of treatment, right? They each have a rose is treated differently than even a zucchini flower, right? It's very, very different sort of treatment. It doesn't mean that one is necessarily better than the other, there's just different ways that you have to treat them. And in order for that garden to be vibrant, you really need to be able to uh, cultivate it and grow it and really get to know what is it that that particular, you know, breed or um, I hate to use the word breed, but, you know, the, that type of flower needs in order to, to grow and thrive. Um, and so I always often tell my students when I teach about inequality that if a flower doesn't grow, you don't blame the flower. Right. You, you don't say flower. Well, how dare you not grow? You need to look at who's caring for it. How is it getting cultivated? How is it grown and begin to look around the flower? And yeah, there are flowers that can burst out of concrete or grow in the desert, for example. But is that really the kind of world you want for your flowers? You know, a world that you have to constantly be coming out of on concrete. And so that's critical race theory says each flower is different. Then it takes it another step. And let's say you walk into a greenhouse or in our nursery, right? You're about to go buy some flowers for your yard. And you notice that only one type of flower is thriving in this greenhouse, in this nursery. And you're looking around and all the other flowers are having a bit more difficult time than that one flower. You're not going to, again, blame the flower. You're going to say, hey, where's the person that handles a greenhouse? What's going on in this greenhouse that is making it so that only one type of flower thrives, 
Um, and so that's kind of the way that I'm trying to explain how critical race theory works. It's being able to recognize that each group has its unique qualities that we need to really be able to be cognizant of and consider when we're making really important policy decisions and to de- realize it might affect people differently. When you're, when you're the person that's responsible for the greenhouse, you want to try to learn as much as you can about all the people that you represent, you know, that, that all the flowers that you represent in this world to be able to make it a beautiful, vibrant, growing, you know, garden a beautiful, vibrant-growing community, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good a good analogy. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're just about to the end of the, the conversation. Um, I just want to end just uh, maybe 30 seconds worth that you uh, where you ended your TED Talk. Um, if I, I probably got this wrong, you can correct me. You you talked about who's in your neighborhood, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you, t- you say unity comes when you are as inspired by your neighbor's journey as she is by yours. Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I get that yes. somewhat right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So just we just have about 30 seconds here to, to wrap this up. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I guess it starts with curiosity and empathy, I guess? Yeah, I, I think that it starts with um, uh, recognizing that there's so much more to know about this world and different people. And it's about asking who is at your table, who, you know, and not just who's in your neighborhood, like who do you see, who's around you and who would you like to have there? And are you creating enough of an environment that's welcoming for people to be able to come and get to know who you are? You know, the Benyon Teachers Workshop was, I was very, very intentional about the speakers that we chose because I wanted to make sure that they got an, the teachers that came here got an opportunity to learn about a variety of different Uh, students that they may encounter um, and even students that they may not encounter but that their students should know about. Well, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, And if you're interested in participating, if you're an an educator, um, just uh, maybe the easiest way, go to mountainwest.usu.edu and you can click over to the Benyon Teachers Workshop, sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Maricela Martinez-Colas, Assistant Professor of Sociology at USU, and she's directing the workshop and has been with us for the hour here. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That went fast. (laughs) It it does, yeah. Good good discussion. Uh, We'll go out as we do on Wednesdays with Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The Green River is a major physical divide in eastern Utah, yet it's also a lifeline for drinking water, agriculture, and recreation. This week, learn how the river has been a barrier and a bridge for one community along its banks. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the arid west, water is a force for both division and connection. The deep canyons of the Green River have barred human travel for thousands of years. One of the few natural crossing points is the 10-mile stretch of water at the modern-day town of Green River. This crossing was settled in 1878 as a postal station along the Overland Mail Route. Called Blake after the man who ran it, the station became a stop on the new Denver and Rio Grande Railroad in 1883. Aside from the railroad bridge, for the next 30 years, the only way to transport people and goods across the river was a ferry service. A wagon bridge finally replaced the ferry in 1910. When the bridge collapsed in 1946, 
The disruption was dramatic on both sides of the river. On the west, traffic was diverted far north through Duchesne, while farms on the east could not get their melons to market. Even today, that rebuilt bridge and adjacent I-70 remain the only crossings of the Green River for hundreds of miles. As well as a barrier to travel, the Green River forms the dividing line between Emory and Grand Counties. At the crossing, the town of Blake sat on the east bank and Elgin on the west. By 1917, the riverbed had shifted about a mile and resulted in a prolonged court battle between the counties. Yet the close proximity of Blake and Elgin had forged a single community at the old Green River crossing, unifying residents through their connections to the river. Together, they had built diversion dams and canals to irrigate their farms. Residents on both sides relied on the river for water supplies, and everyone enjoyed water recreation. For over 50 years, the town hosted the annual friendship cruise that brought boaters together to celebrate their love of the river. No longer divided, the town at the Old Green River Crossing is one community spanning both sides of its namesake waterway, and it's the heart of a region centered on the river. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, where researchers are taking safety for tomorrow's nuclear reactors to the next level by using the laws of physics. More information about the evolution of reactor safety systems is available on INL's YouTube channel. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU-FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org. Thank you.